0: Welcome back to another episode of Crawford Insights, the podcast where we take a recent post from the Crawford Investment Council blog and discuss it with the author. I'm your host, Tom Bueller, and I'm excited to welcome back our first ever guest, Frank Pinkerton, Analyst and Portfolio Manager of the Crawford Core Equity Strategy. Thanks for coming back, Frank. Thanks for
1: having me, Tom.
0: Today, we'll be discussing pharma industry's DNA imparts quality. Frank, you cover the healthcare sector for us here at Crawford and have analyzed these companies for over 25 years. They have historically been an area that we maintain holdings in due to the consistent nature of these businesses. You wrote about these characteristics in your article, so let's get right into the details. You began the article highlighting the firm's focus on dividend integrity and balanced capital allocation. These are topics of two of our recent podcasts as well. Let's start with dividend integrity. Please spend a minute or two reminding our investors of what dividend integrity is and why it's such a critical part of our research process. So for
1: us, dividend integrity is the ability of a company to pay its dividend to investors consistently and increasingly over time. When we think of some of the characteristics there, these are all also uh, held by the pharmaceutical companies, are things like a strong balance sheet, sustainable profitability, consistency in profitability, and then also the ability for that dividend to be paid over time and to be increased. So, Tom, in addition to being high in dividend integrity, the pharmaceutical companies are very favorable capital allocators. They historically, or at least over the last two decades, have paid out between 30 to 50 percent of their free cash flow to shareholders in a mix of dividends and share repurchases. The companies also have a high inherent basis of R&D baked into their income statement. This means that they invest more back into growth than almost all other industries within the S&P 500.
0: You point out that the pharmaceutical market is large today, but also somewhat limitless as we look into the future. How is it possible that they continue to expand their opportunities?
1: Currently, the pharma market is about $1.5 trillion. That, in and of itself, is a very large market. But when we speak of a limitless market with pharmaceuticals, we're really thinking of all of the health issues that we can have going into the future. So, for example, their conditions currently being treated that 10, 15, 20 years ago we thought were impossible to treat. So as science evolves, as technology evolves, you know, as we learn more about the human body, diseases, also face new pandemics such as COVID, the pharmaceutical industry is there as all these things help create new markets for it to grow into the future.
0: So this is a little bit off topic, but something you wrote really stood out to me, and I'm going to quote from the paper right now. You said, only in the very distant future would the human race be able to solve all of its health-related problems. Is that just hyperbole, or is that actually a realistic outcome? So that, of course, is going to be hyperbole for my
1: lifetime. But it's not unbelievable that at some point we could have enough knowledge to do that. The biggest problems with solving actually the health-related issues today is, number one, so much of healthcare is dependent upon the individual. So you as an individual derive a lot of your own health outcomes, maybe not only through genetics, but also through your actions, things such as exercise, diet, other things of that nature. Also, think of the constantly changing landscape, new diseases, new bacteria, new problems that come on board. So even if we advance our knowledge to a certain degree, those things still may come out and be something that allows for future markets. The bar is constantly moving, but we're getting closer to being a healthier race as humans going forward.
0: So within my lifetime, eternal life. Got it. Check. (laughs) Doubt it, Tom. (laughs) A boy can dream. One of the other things you wrote about in the article was that it's going to take a while for scientists to figure all this out, but until they do that, there are future health issues that can be treated by pharmaceuticals. However, developing these treatments is complicated and costly. Can you provide some context for us on that? This
1: is a great time for a little story. In my kind of career, I spent basically the first 16, 17 years in what's called the sell side, which I worked at large banks and we would do research on companies and helping the investment bankers and the trading desks. When I left that side of the business, I was able to actually invest in small companies. An ex CFO from a company I'd followed, they were doing a round, I invested in it, showed up at their investor day. Afterwards, he and I were hanging out. The CEO came over, we got to talking. And it's really the first time I got to see the other side of a pharmaceutical company. So this is someone with about 15 years of experience working at large banks in New York. And the CEO pulls out this binder. And it is just it shocked and blew my mind at the amount that is needed to do basic things in the pharmaceutical industry. So he started off with a chart with 50 different boxes on it to get to the phase one for the drug. The problem is, each one of those boxes was its own separate page that had between 20 and 50 boxes on that page they had to check off. So, when you think about what the FDA requires of these companies in order just to get these drugs, for example, into phase one, and then there's a whole nother set of things to get them through the the process and get approved, it's just mind blowing the amount of detail that's needed. So, when I think of a moat, or the difficulty in getting uh, you know, R&D done, it just is almost unbelievable the amount of detail that has to go into getting these things done.
0: And so you just mentioned the phrase moat, and part of that is because it's so difficult to get this done, not a lot of companies have the resources or maybe even knowledge to do that. Can you talk about what a moat means for these companies and how that benefits them?
1: Sure. So I guess the moat is, is an old adage in finance, and you think of an old castle that has the watery moat around it, and that's the protection of the castle from invaders and knights and other things trying to come into the castle. In economics, we use moat pretty much the same way. It is the defense of a company. So if I'm a pharmaceutical company and I'm looking at all my competition out there, it's pretty established with the big players. For someone to come up from the very beginning, the very early stages, and actually, get all the way to market, you're going to have to think about somewhere around $2 billion is what they're going to need to get their first drug to market. Now, that's not only $2 billion, it's probably somewhere around 12 years. And they're probably going to have somewhere around a 90% failure rate. So if you were to take a startup and say, I'm going to have this company, we're going to grow it into a large cap pharma company, It's really highly unlikely that that happens. We've had a few over the last two decades in the biotech area that have grown up and and made it and come that way. But they're really not fully developed. They don't have all the aspects of R&D and other things that pharma has. The other big moats in the pharmaceutical world are intellectual capital. And this can be seen as both the cumulative knowledge held in all these pharma companies because they've been doing this research, they have these huge databases, they have this experience, but also the people knowledge that all of these companies possess. It's difficult to get a Ph.D. in combinatorial chemistry. It's difficult to get an M.D. and then want to go and run trials. These people are employed at all these large cap pharma companies, they have not only huge intellectual capacity, but also experience that can't be replicated out in the real world. And then lastly, these companies hold goodwill. I know there's often negative media attention, but the physicians that have written prescriptions from these companies in the past that trust their salespeople, trust their marketing people, trust the outcomes of their studies, and the patients that take the drugs that have had good outcomes, that is goodwill that's built up that these companies have going forward It's very difficult to replicate.
0: Yeah, there's a lot to that for sure. You mentioned in your article the idea of exclusivity or the fact that a pharmaceutical company will have some protection from competition for a while. Can you talk about why that exists and what benefits it brings to the table for them?
1: Sure. So exclusivity is basically the idea that society, or in this case, we're going to talk about countries or regions of the world, have said It's so costly to bring these drugs to market that if you're going to spend all that money up front, we're going to allow a time that your drug is the only one that's allowed on the market in order for you to make back a higher return than what you invested. And the whole concept there is to make that money back so the excess money would then be spent on another research and development project to bring the next drug to market, either in the same indication that's better or in other kind of disease areas to continue to help society. So when we think about exclusivity, it's really kind of a regional focus. In the United States, base exclusivity is five years. And you say, wow, when I think of drugs in the U.S., it's longer than that. That's because the U.S. has a very complicated patent system. And so most drugs end up having somewhere between 12 and 15 years alone on the market because of the way in which they organize and arrange and file for additional patents for their drugs. Outside of the U.S., when you think about exclusivity periods, the European Union has a 10-year exclusivity period that's written into law, and that's really the big thing. They don't get a whole lot of extensions on patents, but you get 10 years. Japan technically doesn't have exclusivity. It has a Ministry of Health, which does reviews periodically on their drugs. So most of the drugs there get six to eight years of exclusivity, but it has kind of the most similar to the United States patent Kind of working so that most companies then even get more on top of the exclusivity period through filing of patents in court and litigation, similar to that in the United States.
0: So, yeah, just one more complicating factor where you're dealing with different rules in different countries. It's exactly
1: right. It's funny though that while I just explained that and everyone's head was probably spinning. All of those rules and regulations allow for the pharmaceutical companies to have more consistent cash flows. So we as investors at Crawford, when we can look at these companies, we have a pretty good map into the future of how much our drug is going to sell. When that drug loses exclusivity, history shows us how much it loses. We can then chart out the cash flows of the companies, relay that back to dividends and say to ourselves, hey, this is a company we can own through this, or this is a company we need to avoid for our investors to make sure that they get not only share return, but also the uh, income through dividends uh, that they require.
0: You mentioned the U.S. and its kind of exclusivity uh, structure. Why is the U.S. such an important market for pharmaceutical companies?
1: Well, the, the real answer to that, Tom, is price. So let's think about all the, the, the different geographies in, in the world. When we think about all the different geographies in the world, the United States is about 45 or 46% of the revenue currently on an annual basis. The next largest country after the U.S. is China at 7.5%, and then Japan at about 5%. If you take all the countries in the European Union and you add them up, it's just under 20%. So Europe plus the big three, you're getting somewhere between 75 and 80% of all the revenue. But because the U.S. is so large at about 45% of revenue, the difference there really is price. And most of the prices for these drugs are coming from the new drug approvals. Most of the new drugs that are coming out are in indications that are either very rare or things like oncology with very high science. And so from that standpoint, these drugs are priced at a higher point, and that's really what's driving the revenue in these countries.
0: You also discuss in your paper the divestitures that pharmaceutical companies have undertaken over the years. Why have they historically invested in acquiring or building these ancillary businesses? And does it have to do with the cash flow that they're able to generate? So, Tom, yeah, the cash flow or the excess
1: cash these companies have generated over the last 50 years have led them down many paths. But most of the areas where they've had what we call ancillary businesses, they've had them for a very specific reason. So, for example, companies like Lilly and Merck have a long history in the animal health business. Most of those animal health businesses were formed off of drugs that at one point Lilly and Merck either sold or researched into humans. Also, both of those companies have had vaccines over the long term. The vaccinations that are similar to humans can also be used in many of the animals. When you think of other businesses, many of the pharma companies held what were one time called pharmacy benefit management companies. These were companies that helped in reducing the price of drugs longer term. When that was deemed not reliable to be held within a pharma company because the PBMs needed to negotiate and there was conflict of interest, those were all spun out. Other areas that have been very good especially in the last 15 years is diagnostics. Most of the products that are brought to market now, it's not simply you go in and you have a fever so they give you a drug. These are very complex medications that are either targeting gene mutations, targeting very specific traits for something like a bacteria or a virus or with cancer, the very specific genetic code of the cancer. So you need a complex diagnostic test. A lot of the diagnostic businesses that are large today were formed inside pharmaceutical companies and have spun out over the last decades. The one really that remains is Roche has a very large internal diagnostic business. But that's one where the intellectual property and the know-how was within the pharmaceutical company. They built those businesses to help them get drugs approved in the future, but then realized they were better to be spun out.
0: As I mentioned earlier, you and I did the very first podcast together, and it was actually on Johnson & Johnson's decision to spin off its consumer business. Can you give us an update on where that stands?
1: Sure. So Johnson & Johnson's uh, business on the consumer side was named Kenview. Uh, It did an initial public offering on May the 4th. After the recent quarter, J&J announced that the current shareholders could choose to swap their shares of Johnson & Johnson for a pro rata or an equivalent amount of Kenview shares. And of course, they would get a 7% discount, which means basically they would take about $93 worth of Johnson & Johnson shares and they'd get $100 worth of Kenview. This is basically j and I think, is doing the market a favor here because what they're trying to do is take their existing shareholders that would favor holding Kenview and allowing them to get that at a discount. But then you are also having individuals and investors that want to own that stock. A lot of times, these companies will take it and they'll just say all J and J shareholders get X amount of shares, and you're stuck with it. And then what you have is a lot of investors that want to buy and sell and move around over that first month. By doing it this way, I think what Johnson Johnson's trying to do is number one, reduce their own share count, and number two, make a stable platform of investors for Kenview so that it can grow in the future.
0: Interesting. Yeah, I haven't seen that type of structure before.
1: Yeah, the the, the structures can vary. Uh, this is one that sh- you know. I always say should because we don't know until it happens, but it's one that you know should work better given the larger size of the Johnson & Sh- Johnson shareholder base versus a smaller size of the Kenview
0: shareholder base. Are future divestitures something that we look at during our research process?
1: The answer is we track all the ancillary businesses for these companies. And so, yes, we do. But I need to take a step back here and say that's really a secondary concern for us. So when we look at companies, we start with quality. Then we go to the dividend sustainability. Then we go to the dividend growth. Then we start digging into the financials and the business and the operations. And we really start with the main businesses and work our way out. There could be a time in the future where we look at a company and say, wow, they have an ancillary business or a secondary business, and it's undervalued and the street doesn't really recognize it. But we would have to like the primary business and be comfortable with the quality and the dividend payments before we would ever go and think about doing something with the ancillary businesses.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to prioritize it that way. Why are pharmaceutical companies so well positioned to exhibit the characteristics of dividend integrity and display that balanced capital allocation? You know, the the easy
1: answer is kind of what we started with, and it's they've got a strong balance sheet, right? They can issue low cost debt, they don't ever over leverage themselves, they have predictable businesses, you know, they have very steady cash flows and they pay dividends. But when we wrote this piece, our whole goal was to peel back those layers. I think it's sometimes in finance easy to go out and look at a bunch of numbers and say, oh, wow, the numbers look really, really good. We can buy this company. But what you have to understand is behind all those numbers that I just talked about and all those characteristics, there really are factors that we've talked about today. Extremely large market that's growing, one that can be almost endless, a very high spend on internal research and development that's going to continue to drive future growth patent protection that allows them to charge rents, higher prices for their products for a certain period of time that then funnels back into the business for growth, and then ancillary businesses that really help them see the future, make investments in different ways and potentially spend those off for even greater capital.
0: With the outlook for ongoing uncertainty in the economy and stock market, do you envision that the pharma industry will continue to be an opportune place to invest?
1: In in a word, the answer is yes. For a more kind of broad answer on this, pharma over the last 50 years has had periods of outperformance and underperformance. So the clearest thing that pharma has done on the outperformance segment is when they've run into trouble, specifically political trouble in the United States or Europe, Once that subsided, they've typically outperformed very large. The prime example of that would have been Hillary Care in the early 90s, followed by massive outperformance in the late 90s for pharmaceutical companies. The second place where pharmaceutical companies typically perform well is at the end of and out of a recession. And so, for example, they performed very well from mid-2000 to 2002, and they performed well in the back half of 2008 all the way through 2009. So those are kind of two areas when people think of pharmaceutical companies. That's when you get massive outperformance versus the indexes. From our perspective, when we invest for our clients, we're more selective. I think you can't look at the pharmaceutical industry and just say we need to be in it or we need to be out of it. You need to hand select the stocks. You need to understand when their drugs go off patent, when they're going to launch new drugs, what the pipelines potentially can look like. We find the sustainable companies that can pay that dividend and grow that dividend, and then we rely on those to outperform over time, which we think uh, investors can really enjoy if if we can get that right.
0: Fantastic. Well, Frank, thanks for giving us some additional detail about the pharmaceutical industry and why we at Crawford have historically found it a rewarding place to invest on behalf of our clients. It sure seems like it will continue to be an attractive place to invest as well. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you haven't already done so, be sure to check out our article, Pharma Industries' DNA Imparts Quality, on our website at insights.crawfordinvestment.com forward slash perspectives. Subscribe to our perspectives articles while you're there, and be sure to come back next month for another episode.